You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Buenas noches, mi gente. So lovely to see so many beautiful faces with us in the Zoom Mundo tonight to celebrate this beautiful book. For those of you who don't know where you are, por favor, allow me to welcome you to City Lights Live. This is the uh, virtual event series that follows in the footsteps of the City Lights Bookstore's calendar. The, the events we used to do upstairs in the poetry room, those beloved events, they've gone on to the Zoom Mundo now. That's where y'all are with us. And this series uh, is continuing to celebrate the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums into the spring season and beyond. For those of you who don't know, I am broadcasting live from the bookstore. City Lights in San Francisco and San Pancho has been back open for a few months now. Uh, We've got the pandemic rules going on and the distancing and all that, but um, I am broadcasting to you from the offices of our dearly loved Patron Ferlinghetti, Lawrence Ferlinghetti's office, sending you some bookstore love. And letting you know that the bookstore is back open. So if you're in San Pancho, if you're in the Bay Area, please come and visit. We miss you. The bookstore misses you. Come back to City Lights, people. (laughs) And, you know, let me just remind you, too, that City Lights is also a publishing house. Among the many, many beautiful books that we've published is this this beautiful book right here, Eat the Mouth That Feeds, Yumi Hante by Caribbean Fragosa, which we're going to be celebrating tonight. Really wonderful conversation with her and Hector Tovar. Hector Tovar's book. The last great road bomb, already a classic. Yes, yes, already a classic. I want to say that this event, this very special event that City Lights is putting on tonight is um, being done in partnership with our good friends over there at the Los Angeles Review of Books. So uh, give it up for the Los Angeles Review of Books, mi gente, supporting great literature. And now, without further ado, I talk a lot in the beginning. I'm nervous. I'm excited. This is going to be so good, guys. This we're celebrating, like I keep telling you, the book, Eat the Mouth That Feeds You, by Carabian Fragosa. It's her debut collection of stories, many of which reside in the domestic surreal, featuring an unusual gathering of Latinx and Chicanx voices from both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border and universes beyond. Carabian Fragosa is a graduate of the Creative Writing MFA program at CalArts, where she worked with writers Douglas Kearney and Norman Klein. Fragosa is founder of Vicious Ladies, a new website publishing women, equis, queer, and non-binary critics of color. She also co-edits the U.S. Press's acclaimed California cultural journal, Boom California, and is also the founder of South Del Monte Arts Posse, an interdisciplinary arts colectivo. Caribbean's fiction and nonfiction have appeared in numerous publications, including Ziziva, Alta, Bomb, Huizache, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. She's the co-editor of East of East, The Making of Greater El Monte, and is also the senior writer at the Tropics of Meta. Carabian is the coordinator of the Kingsley and Kate Tufts Poetry Award at Claremont Graduate University, and she lives in the San Gabriel Valley in Los Angeles County, y'all. And joining Carabian in conversation, Hector Tovar. For those of you who don't know, he's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and novelist. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Deep Down Dark, as well as the Barbarian Nurseries, Translation Nation, one of my personal favorites, and The Tattooed Soldier. Tovar is also a contributing writer for the New York Times opinion page and an associate professor at the University of Califas in Irvine. He has written for The New Yorker, The Los Angeles Times, and other publications. Hector's short fiction has appeared in the Best American Short Stories, L.A. Noir, 
Zizava and State, the son of Guadalajara Migrantes. He is a native of Los Angeles where he lives with his familia. Farah Strauss Nguiro recently published his novel, The Last Great Road Bomb. It's a great pleasure to have them both here, me gente. And as if all that wasn't enough, we're gonna have a Q&A at the end of their conversation. And don't forget to buy these books, support City Lights, buy some literature. So without further ado, mi gente, por favor, give a warm, warm Zoom Mundo welcome to Caribbean Fragosa and Hector Tobar. Thank you. Thank you, Josiah, for that wonderful introduction. And thank you to City Lights for having us here and for publishing Caribbean, which is, you know, this book is incredible. It's a spectacular book. I've been rereading it for the past few days and it doesn't really feel like a debut to me. It feels like the voice of a really seasoned writer, you know, someone who's really hit her stride. And it's really one of the best anthologies of short fiction I've read in a long, long time. So congratulations, Caribbean. I wanted to start a conversation by talking about a place that not many people outside of the Los Angeles County have heard of, which is South El Monte. And, you know, the name really only appears once, if I'm correct, in this collection, and then in Spanish, right? Sur El Monte. But I really feel the San Gabriel Valley and, you know, a, a community a lot like South El Monte in this collection, the people, the landscape, it's sort of maybe an obvious question, but why, what do you find evocative about, about South El Monte and, and those more humble proletarian corners of the San Gabriel Valley? How does it inspire art in you? First of all, thank you, Hector, for joining us here and for reading my book so carefully and with so much love. And thank you to City Lights. We were here last night. We're here again. And I want to thank everybody for joining us tonight. There's so many other amazing Zoom events going on, so I'm happy to share space with you right now. To your question, Hector, about South El Monte, and you're right, the name Sur El Monte only appears once, Sur El Monte, in Sabado Gigante, but throughout the rest of the stories, not all of them, but most of them, South El Monte in the San Gabriel Valley is still present. And there's a couple of things. There's the stories themselves of working class people people that I grew up with, not just my peers of my age that I grew up with, but also the señoras. I grew up listening to my mom's friends, to the vecinas, to just cheese me on the street, at the store, at the tortilleria, just anywhere. And all of that listening really informed my work. And there's also the landscape, which is very important to me. South El Monte is a very particular kind of suburb. It's not the kind of suburb we see on TV at all. It's a very working class Mexican multi-ethnic suburb. It's Mexican primarily and then also Southeast Asian. So we have this really unique mix in this suburban landscape that is also very dense. So this feeling of being close to other bodies and other houses that really shaped, I guess, my sensibility that we see in some of the stories and also the landscape in the sense that it's a suburb that's sort of mishmashed with industrial zones. So we have houses and people living right next to warehouses, right next to welding shops, right next to sweatshops, sometimes houses that have been converted into sweatshops. So all of that really fed into my imagination, especially these sort of nebulous blurry zones where you don't know if it's a house or if it's a sweatshop. And it just kind of inspired a lot of storytelling and speculating for me. So those are some of the ways that South El Monte just sort of permeates the stories, even if I don't always mention it by name. 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I'm remembering now that you co-edited uh, with Romeo Guzman and, and others this incredible anthology of nonfiction pieces about El Monte and South El Monte, which I highly recommend. It's called East of East, The Making of Greater El Monte, and which I had the pleasure of reviewing for the LA Review of Books. Just absolutely just wonderful journey into this community. But in your fiction, it's sort of like Garcia Marquez's Macondo meets Kafka's Prague, you know? <laughs> Because you do this incredible uh, work of tapping into the psychic landscape of the place. You know, it's just really amazing. And, and my, my favorite story, among my favorites, it's hard to choose now because I have, a, I have a couple of favorites. But one of them is this story called The Vicious Ladies, which is, I think, the second one in the anthology. To me, it, one of the themes of the story, it's about class. You know, it, it's about loyalty and motherhood and family. Can you tell the audience, just to get a sort of flavor of the book for people who haven't had a chance to read it yet, Tell us about The Vicious Ladies, what the story is about. Yeah, Vicious Ladies is a story about a girl, a young woman who graduates from college and decides for different reasons to come back home, to her home where she grew up and to her hometown. And she, not really by choice, but ends up becoming involved with an all-girl party crew called The Vicious Ladies. Now, those of us who grew up in the 90s, especially, will remember the underground party scene and there were party crews all over the place. And so Vicious Ladies is inspired in part by a real party crew called the Vicious Ladies. I read an article in the LA Weekly about it and they have a really special story that I can talk more about later. But this girl without any job prospects, not really knowing what her direction in life is, decides, well, doesn't decide. She just kind of rolls along with these old cholas basically that continue to party and have made an entire business out of it. It's really, it's, it's a spectacular story. It's the one, it's the one story in the collection that I think is the, embraces realism, you know, uh, more than a lot of the other stories do. It feels, uh, I don't want to say reported because it's much, you know, but it, it does feel very closely observed, you know, uh, to a very specific sort of reality. Could we ask you to read the first few paragraphs of this, the first three paragraphs? And also, as you prepare that, I want to remind the audience that please purchase these books. <laughs> it's, it's available for sale online. So, Yes, thank you. So um, as Hector said, I'm going to read a little bit from Vicious Ladies, just the opening three paragraphs. At the far end of the backyard, nestled in overgrown summer grass, the girls huddled around their private nitrous oxide tank. One at a time, they collapsed into the waiting arms of the other ladies. The more experienced ones knew when to pull the colored balloon from their painted lips. A few seconds longer, and a girl could have a much harder fall, like the stupid boys over there, who mostly toppled over, smacking their teeth against the concrete patio, drooling and bleeding onto their mom iron shirts. The vicious ladies knew better, and they took care of each other. Parting, they'd learned, was not only their business, it was also a way of life and they were gonna do it right. It was like watching a clandestine baptism. The girls faithfully dropped their bodies into the invisible waters that would make them new. And the Nas did, each emerged from their trips smiling like they'd all seen some variation of a God that was gentle and kind and sometimes very funny. Since we started bringing the Nas, the parties are even more unbearable. 
from my seat on a plastic mill crate next to the empty beer cans and stench of dog urine, I can't stop watching the kids suck on balloons and roll their eyes back into their heads and open their mouths like they're about to speak in tongues. They don't know that this God they experience has a name. It's called Samira. And this is all part of Samira's plan that has only begun to unfold exactly as she expects it to. Her genius evades and disgusts me. And I hate all of them. I hate the vicious ladies. Wow. <laughs> so wonderful. And the story builds this, I'm not going to give it away for those who haven't read it. It builds to this really powerful confrontation between the two women at the center of the story, which is basically, you know, it's like the two paths open to the Chicanx community that these two women are, are following and, you know, and they have this almost debate about it. It's really incredible, uh, incredible story, incredible ending to the story too. And, you know, the thing too, that I noticed in all of these stories was just the incredible polish you know, uh, in these stories, like I said before, they feel worked, you know, like you've really worked hard on these. And so that's sort of my, my next question is, when did you sort of begin to sort of tell yourself that you needed to write fiction about the place where you grew up and to bring these voices to the page? Can you remember when you first got that sort of inkling that I need to do this? Gosh, I started writing fiction at a pretty young age, but I didn't know what I was doing. I think I was trying to capture certain characters that felt real to me. I think many of us writers of color go through a phase when we're trying to write, like the writers, the authors that we learn about in school, and we try to mimic them, which is a good kind of practice often, but then we have to find our own voices and our own characters. and. I remember at a young age, like in high school, especially like really trying to look at the people around me and find characters there. But about South El Monte, I think that didn't start happening until sometime in my adulthood. I, I can't even remember specifically when it might have been Vicious Ladies. I think for a while I was writing a lot of stories that were talking about Mexico, women remembering like the homeland. But at some point, as I was really trying to hone in on my voice and my vision for my stories, I started arriving closer and closer to home until I realized where I was, which was back in South El Monte. But like you said, in that sort of Macondo dimension of South El Monte, just like a, a dimension that's slightly elevated in a way, not exactly right on the ground of South El Monte, but just a couple degrees off what it exactly is. So it, I guess it was a journey. It took a while. So I imagine that's what you felt was sort of missing in, you know, I mean, I remember starting off my own career thinking there were certain things that I want, certain holes I wanted to fill, you know, in United States literature or the, the literature you'd find in a bookstore, you know, that I didn't quite feel represented what, what I was trying, to, what I had seen in my life and what I had lived, my family had lived. I, I sort of sensed that, you know, did, did you, what, what, what was it you felt that you could bring? What was sort of missing from American literature, from literature that you could bring, you know, that, that you wanted to sort of get on the page? I think I was really lucky because I was able to major in Chicano studies. So Chicano studies wow. at UCLA was one of uh, my majors and it really built a really strong base. I mean, obviously I got all of the 
the literary canon that we would expect in high school. But at UCLA, I really made it a point to find a new canon for myself. And that that started happening in Chicano studies and in learning about the Chicano movement and the literary movements that came out of that and the arts movements. But even that felt a little like off the mark for me because there's expectations and I think a sort of style or even a trope that's developed over time of what a Chicano or a Chicana is supposed to sound like or what kinds of themes we're supposed to address. And some of them are imposed upon us and some of them are self-imposed and and sometimes they make sense. And sometimes it's time to find new ways of talking about ourselves and our experiences. So I feel like through the Chicano studies major and also comparative literature, I was able to build out my literary canon in an international way and start thinking of myself as a writer that's connected to writers all over the world, not just in the United States. I felt like I could build off of that. And I have to just say, I mean, it's not really addressing your question, but like Jamaica Kincaid, Lucy and A Small Place were just so influential on me in developing particularly female voices with a lot of attitude and uh, complex characters. So I always credit Jamaica Kincaid and I always credit Elena Maria Viramontes for helping me find my way. I don't know if that addressed your question. No, absolutely. I was th- that was my next question was about influences. And you mentioned, you know, world literature. Uh, I sensed a little Kafka, you know, and, and, and some other things. And I, um, so, so yes, absolutely. You know, I think we all sort of come to, to our voices from the, the, the books that fall into our laps from teachers and courses. But what I'm really impressed in this anthology is how different each story is from the next. They all take place in these different places. Can you talk a little bit about switching back and forth between these different genres? You have stories that sort of are set in this sort of like almost historical kind of hybrid, you know, mysterious place. Others that are very, very clearly in the sort of surreal setting, others that are more realistic. Are you experimenting? What's going on here with this, all of this, you know, going between genres? How do you do that? And also you do journalism. I mean, imagine there's sort of a switch you have to pull to sort of go through all these different places. So maybe I can start off by addressing the switching between nonfiction and fiction, because sometimes I get questions about that. And one of the things I always say, and I really believe in, is that sometimes some stories in the world are factual stories, real stories. If I made them up as fiction, nobody would believe them. I mean, sometimes the world is just so astonishing and the stories that it offers us like a writer doesn't need to add anything like it's just phenomenal as it is and nonfiction can serve a story best as a piece of journalism or an essay and for the fiction for me and I've said it before it usually really depends on on the voice of the character and I think in my earlier stories I was more grounded in the real not so much in the magical or in that sort of alternative reality space. And that really came again from listening to people around me and trying to capture the sounds of their stories, the cadence in their bodies and in their voices. And it was like a real exercise for me to try to do that. So those were very realistic. And then the magical ones, I think, were more internal for me like eat the mouth that feeds you the story where the the mother is being consumed she's being eaten by her daughter and that came from a very like internal place 
So I, I kind of tap into a voice that's inside of me for whatever reason. I don't always know how it gets there. And then I try to listen to that internal voice. And those will often spin me off into a different dimension. Yeah, I mean, both those, you know, Sabado Gigante, for example, a story uh, which is in part about this famous sort of variety television show and about this singer. And it's the one story that has South and Monte mentioned in it. You know, there's he's this wonderful you know singer, but it's really about you're describing again and again why this man wants to sing, right? And how he gets stigmatized by some of the boys when he's you know as 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 a young man singing. I just really felt your your need to sort of capture that part of Mexican American experience of the Chicanx experience of just the songs and how they speak to us. And although I'm pretty sure it never ends, how does that, that story ends? Well, it has a crazy ending. That's your imagination at work, right? Yeah, I think that was like <laughs> what I really wish would have happened at some point at Sábado Gigante. I just wanted bad things to happen to Don Francisco because <laughs> he was such a creep. And I'm thinking just as a side note of pushing that story into a more magical realm. And I think there was a little bit of that, but I, I decided to pull it back a little bit and just keep it where I think it needed to be in the real. It's a wonderful story. It's a really powerful story. You know, and I, yeah, and Eat the Mouth That Feeds You, that really struck me as an allegory about motherhood in general, right? Uh, you, you have two young children, uh, correct? Was that story you, you started writing after you started writing, had kids? Yeah, I started writing that story shortly after I found out I was pregnant with my first kid. Oh, So there was two things going on. I was newly pregnant for the first time ever uh, with Aura, who's now nine. And then my grandmother and my great-grandmother had just recently passed away. So I was just in this emotional space of becoming a mother, getting ready to be a mother for the first time, but then also having to let go of the previous generations of my grandmother and my great-grandmother. And that story, I just sat down. I remember where I was sitting at my mother's house and I just started writing it from beginning to end. Wow. Basically in one sitting. It felt that way. It really felt that way. It felt like you went with, maybe you can just tell, you know, tell the audience here what the sort of central idea is of the story and how you sort of just, you just, it just takes off. So it starts off with a, with a mother describing how her daughter, a grown daughter, is literally eating her, taking bites out of her body. My daughter, for lack of memory, eats me. And the reason she's eating her is because the daughter has a lot of questions about the family, about why they are the way they are and where they come from. And the mother doesn't know how to answer. So this daughter becomes more and more obsessed with not just eating the mother, but then also eating objects and she she eats letters and drinks ink and this is her process of trying to learn about family and about their blood and then we also are transported to to Mexico where the family is from and we learn about clay eating which I learned later there's a tradition of clay eating amongst different cultures So that's just kind of it. And then the mother eventually decides that maybe she needs to try some of these strange eating habits as well to come to terms with her own place in the family line. Well, and that's also about power, you know, because you you give your characters power. Even the guy who's in the Sablo Gigante thing that turns out to be this whole crazy thing. And he's sort of like, he gets shafted. I mean, you know, he gets shafted, but he's empowered at the end of that story. And the mother in that story and the child, they both are trying to become something, you know, and it's so, 
it's so refreshing, you know, in this era of victimhood that we live in to, to have so many characters who find these really unusual ways of being empowered. I mean, even a corpse in one of the stories. <laughs> yeah, totally. So I, I really love that about the stories. And how much of you, your family, your starting a family, your extended family, how much of those are in these stories? You know, are, are they everywhere or is it selected stories? You know, are there little bits of you and your family in all of them? I think there's little bits in almost all of them. Not all of them, but there are many stories that have like real, sometimes real people, real members of my family. But then I think I describe like this whole family scene in Memuero, the final story. And I've been to many family gatherings. I have real names of cousins and tias there. But uh, everybody I will agree that I never actually died at this family party. So, I mean, I just kind of use them as starting points, I guess, for these other stories that just take on a life of their own. Now, in the story, which I just finished again before we started this conversation, New Fire Songs, there is this incredible hybrid space that you've created there. It kind of reminds me of that novel by the South African Jay Coetzee, Waiting for the Barbarians. I don't know if you've I've read that. It's this wonderful South African novel that does this sort of similar thing. It's creating this sort of imaginary space, and it's this historical space. It's modern in ways because there's a prank with some balloons that begins the story. And then there's a drone in it that's used to attack the balloons. But then we're transported in the story. It's the same story, the same people. And it's kind of like this almost, you know, agricultural kind of society. It almost feels like something from the late Middle Ages, <laughs> you know. And you know, there's obviously, an, for me, I think, uh, an element of indigeneity in it, perhaps, you know, of an indigenous culture. But it's all done in such, there's such a hint of mystery. It's absolutely an amazing story. So can you tell me the inspiration for the story? Because I just, maybe it's the journalist in me. I don't want you to decode it for me, but how did this jump into your imagination, the story called New Fire Songs? Well, I can point to two things. I lived in Fresno with my family for about four years. We moved there in 2016 when Donald Trump was elected president and we moved away just last summer. So during those four years, I got to witness this Central Valley, this agricultural region of California that is in some ways stuck in different times. And I see some Fresno folks here, and I think some of you might agree. <laughs> and I think sometimes I felt like I was witnessing like going back in time in the way people's ideas, especially in the more conservative parts of the Central Valley, were really hearkening back to decades, sometimes centuries ago. So I was thinking about that. I was thinking about the drought and the fight for water that was going on and will probably come back again in the Central Valley. And then the image of the balloon, if you guys get to read the story, it was just like an image that was so striking to me. I felt like I had to follow this big penis-shaped balloon. And I kind of took it from there. I have never read a story like that in, in American fiction. I mean, and I, uh, that was amazing to me because it captured this sort of sense of mystery about, like, I think precisely what you were just talking about, the way in which we have this legacy of these past oppressions around us everywhere. And the way, you know, us people of color, us darker people, we're sort of like this force that's embedded in the landscape, you know? And so I like that not much, yeah, I mean, you never explained why these people are in the woods. 
I don't think you ever explained it. And I just thought that was really sort of, it was just all really, I mean, just a series of excellent <laughs> artistic decisions that created so much mystery. And it was just a really wonderful story. But there is another thing that's, that's present in this anthology a lot is death. There's a lot of death here. We have a saint that is a statue made of porcelain that has, you know, walks through a vacant lot in, in, in South Elmont. It feels a lot like South Almonte to me and rescues this child and then has this. And then we have another story where there's an actual corpse. Is there a reason why there is? Why do you think that there's so much death in this, uh, in these stories? That's a good question. <laughs> I mean, there's always the the preoccupation of death. I mean, like I said, I lost like my grandmother and my great grandmother in a short period of time. So there's that. And then I also have to be very upfront and say that I read a lot of Anne Rice as a kid, as a teenager in particular, and I read Interview with a Vampire and I was sort of obsessed with becoming a vampire one day. And then more than that, I think there's like this corporeal, this very bodily experience of dying that I find very interesting to engage. It's a way to engage the body through death. And it sort of makes the body strange. And it just, it forces me to look at the body with new eyes. I mean, our living body is certainly a strange thing, but we live with it all the time. But when you think of it through the lens of death, it just forces you to have a different relationship with this body. And then also in part, just thinking about the violence that people of color and that women experience on a daily basis. I mean, that is just a fact. And last summer with the death of George Floyd, I mean, there's, it feels sometimes like there's no escape from the imagery of death in the world. And it's always in our faces, especially now as we're glued to the internet all the time. And as a young person without the internet, I saw it on TV almost constantly on live television, like people dying. I just feel like it's constantly around and it's part of life. And it's certainly part of the, of the life of so many of the characters in the, in this anthology, you know, there's more than one violent father lurking in the background. There's a suggestion of a killer father in one of the stories. And so, yes, a lot of what this is about is women dealing with a very intimate knowledge about violence in their own homes, in their own family situation. Absolutely. Okay. So my last question is just about your, you know, your writing process. There's just so many absolutely gorgeous sentences here in Vicious Ladies. I love the description of my mother waiting around the house like a caged parrot. You know, she's pacing back and forth in the house like a caged parrot. And then of the ladies waiting for me in the car, like a car full of clown buzzards. Ooh, that's, that's, a, that's a real, that's a, that's, a, that's a great one. Or in Mysterious Bodies, right? In which we have this husband whose wife is possessed by these creatures that are in her gut. You say that he stared at the ceiling like watching a great mystical screen where his tragic destiny was projected. Ugh, that was killer. I would have killed to have written that. And also in Memuero, the last story, once again, you know, these moments where the characters realize the world that they're in and the beauty and the mystery around them. And you have your protagonist of the story, who is a corpse that begins the story lying on the cement floor of, of a property with all of the relatives get sort of gathered around her. The description there of her looking at the sky at one point was just absolutely breathtaking. So tell me your process. Tell me about how you're writing these stories. How much time went into writing these stories in this anthology? How long have you been working on this? And what's your process like? Because I know you're also a mom. I know you also have a day job. 
I know that you also are doing all of this incredible cultural and uh, activism. So tell me about your process and how you managed to write such a spectacularly polished book. Thank you for saying all of that. The writing process for this book has been a very long process. It's not a big book. But the story took longer than a decade. I mean, longer than that, because some of them I remember writing in undergrad. And then some of them I started writing in grad school at CalArts. And then a whole bunch of them in the years since I graduated. And then Inifati and New Fire Songs I wrote after the manuscript had already been accepted for publication. I just kind of whipped those out in a month after giving birth to my second kid. And for each story, well, I have to also say that I didn't always know that these were a collection. I wrote them during various periods of my life out of whatever need I was experiencing at the time or whatever was coming to me. And after many years, finally, through the encouragement of Vicky Vertis, my good friend, and through Janet Sarbanes, my beloved mentor from CalArts, they pointed it out. They said, you have a collection, you have to publish this. And then I worked up the courage and then I did. But as far as the polishing goes, I really do labor over every sentence. And I want to make sure that every sentence that I write sounds good when I say it out loud. And that there's also some sort of like, I don't know, strangeness to the sentences. And I really sort of surrender myself to the imagery that comes to me. I think that my family has like a really particular way. We're from Jalisco and people from Jalisco and not from Jalisco know that Juan Rulfo has just this magnificent Mm -hmm. imagery that he uses in a really excellent way of capturing not just imagery, but like speech and like movement and speech. And that I think is a Jalisco thing as well. And so I really identify with that aspect of Juan Rulfo's writing And I really try to capture that. And so I really try to work my sentences so that they are just as alive and as polished and as readable as they can be. And and the proof for me is, will it sound good when you read it out loud? Because that's where you're going to find all the little kinks in your work. Of course, Rufo, that makes so much sense. You know, Rufo, Eliano Nyamas and Pedro Paramo. Just absolutely, you know, I think the only two books he ever wrote were those two yeah. books and and just incredible gems. And yeah, a, a lot of the mystery, I can see the mystery of rural Mexico echoing in your in your work. So thank you, Caribbean. And, and now a hand it over Josiah, do we have any questions? We do. We have a bunch of questions. Actually, before we get started, Caribbean, can I ask you a question? I love your I, questions. There, there have been so many wonderful reviews of this book. So many eloquent people writing about it. But I always hear in the reviews, there's always a reference to dark fiction or darkness. And I read them and I I just thought like, working it out kind of thing. Do you see it? Your fiction is dark? Is that something? I don't. I don't see it as dark. And I'm totally glad you brought up Guatlicue because she's like my queen, you know? She's like the skit. I mean, some people would be terrified. Was it her or was it Goyoshauki? One of them got buried back into the earth after she was uncovered because she was so horrific. It might've been Cuatlicue and- It was Cuatlicue, right? I mean, she's got her flaccid breasts sticking out and fangs. That same year they found the calendar, the sun calendar as well. And they kept the sun calendar, but they buried her. Yeah, she was too scary. And there's a lot of horror, I think, in like the female body and this power that I think was clearly identified in her. 
And I think some people have talked about horror in particular in my work in ways that I hadn't really thought about for myself. And I can see why they would say that. And like I said earlier, I do sort of attribute some of my influences to Anne Rice. I mean, it doesn't get darker than that. I mean, just wanting to be a vampire for half of my teenage years. I mean, how is that not a big influence on my work? But when I'm writing the stories, I'm not really thinking about writing in this genre or wanting to be dark or wanting to provoke horror. It's just like such an embodied experience for me to write it. I feel so like in the body as I'm doing it, as I'm doing the writing that it just kind of is. So there it is like the dark and the horror. Yeah. Thank you. Like I have a million other questions, but I'll I'll share, I'll share. So uh, Michael wanted to know if you plan on bringing any of these characters back in future stories or novelas, specifically Ini Ifati. Ooh, Ini Ifati. Ini Ifati in particular would be fun to bring again because uh, I think I've mentioned this in other events, but I originally had meant Ini Ifati to be a graphic novel and a collection of stories called The Virgin Vengeance. And it was going to be just a collection of stories of the Virgin of Ini taking vengeance upon dudes. So this is one of her experiences, one of her adventures per se. Is there any chance of that becoming a graphic novel? I don't know. I don't, I'm not so good at drawing. I mean, I can draw a little bit, but maybe one day if I find the right collaborator, that would be really fun. So Lydia, Lydia wanted to know, themes of obligation and loyalty often come up in the book. Do you start off with big themes in mind as you launch into a story? Do I start off with big themes as I, I have to think about that a little more. That's a really good question. But I do know that even when I'm not trying to write about these big themes, especially like obligation and loyalty, it's gonna come out, especially in my female characters, because I'm the oldest daughter of three. And I've always carried this sense of obligation as the eldest, but also as like the firstborn in this country to a a family of immigrants. I was the first to go to college. And I just have always felt like this obligation, like this duty, this responsibility to be as successful as possible and to do good with the privileges that I have. And then also, of course, like loyalty to family. Many of us grow up with this really strong loyalty to family. And all of these obligation and loyalty are things that are complicated. We can accept them without question and just as many people do. But I also think it's important to push back and to really understand what these obligations mean and these loyalties and what do we sacrifice for the sake of these obligations and these loyalties? And is it even worth it sometimes? When is it a necessity and when is it too much of a sacrifice for us? So these are two, I'm real, that's a great question. I mean, th- these are two really important themes for me. And then uh, Yishta Marie wanted to know, uh, how does your editorial work connect up with your fiction? Great question. Yishta, she's also, she writes nonfiction fiction. And um, how does it connect for me? When I write fiction, I often see or observe something in the world, not always, but often something, even if it's a tiny thing or something that I hear. And then I just give myself all the permission in the universe to just take it in any direction that I want, that feels necessary to me. It could be to another dimension. It could not be. I mean, it could be anything. But sometimes when I'm writing in particular about art or culture, I care a lot about 
I care a lot about what I what I'm writing about about a particular artist or their body of work and I feel again obligation I feel like a real responsibility to like honor the work and to engage it as carefully and thoughtfully as possible and I feel like it's more of a direct relationship with the maker of that work I usually write about art or music or other cultural things, but it just feels like more of a, a sense of responsibility to another. And, and it's not about me and my ideas necessarily about those things. They are because I'm writing about them and I, I bring my own sensibilities to it, but it's, I feel like it's a different kind of relationship. In fiction, it's, I just give myself permission to go anywhere. Well, we got a pregunta from El Maestro Swirling Alhambra. You would like to know how do you feel about your precursors, people who set examples or the lack of them for you as a writer? Mm, my precursors, I mean, you're one of them, Seshu. And I feel like a lot of appreciation for you and, and like I said, like to the Juan Rulfos and to the Jamaica Kincaids and the Elena Maria Viramontes, like people that I've met and some people that I'll never get to meet. And I feel like, I don't know, like just, a deep sense of appreciation for them. And, and I don't feel like I owe anybody anything, but acknowledgement, I do. I feel like a sense to of gratitude and a responsibility to acknowledge their influence in my work. And then I also feel like it's kind of an honor that I pay to them to do something great with what they've given me. Like I feel, I do feel indebted in some ways, but I also feel like I want to do really great things of my own with what you've given me. So I think appreciation is the big word here for my precursors, like you, Seshu. All right. And then, uh, oh man, look at these questions. Marisol Medina would like to know, does speculative fiction, Chicano futurism relate to how you think about your fiction work? I think I'm, I'm new to, and I don't know how new speculative fiction is to Latinx literature, but it's still something that's fairly new to me. But I do, I have been thinking about it a lot because I think my work is very, well, it's very reflective. Like I'm thinking about a lot of different themes and ideas and issues. But when I think of speculative fiction and futurism, I'm really interested in the idea of thinking about, okay, what is next? And usually I look to art for that kind of thing. Like I really like the work of Lauren Halsey, for example. And I just, I just really like the idea of like what's next instead of just sort of sticking to this like reflective kind of writing. Like I, I really want to see what I can push myself and, and see like what new ways of being in the world we can create. I feel like I'm creating like the ruptures or I want to right now. I want to break things up, but then what happens after? And so I think there may be a lot of room for that in, in speculative fiction and futurism. I think a lot of the, the writers now, particularly the Los Angeles writers, you know, there's that history of you all writing us back into the narrative, into history that, that has tried to erase us. And I think the speculative fiction that's coming out right now with the Latinx community, it's sort of like an extension of not only writing us into the narrative, but also creating a future for us. So a lot of times, like with Seshu's book, I won't see it so much in the future. I see it as the immediacy, the timeline, you know, the now we think of it all as cyclical, right? So y'all yeah. are just creating that future. I think it's an interesting time for the Chicano futurism and speculative fiction in a big way. Yeah, I like that a lot. It's true. It's true. Uh, oh, 
Romeo Guzman would like to know how big an influence was Eladat, particularly the South El Monte El Monte station. <laughs> how big of an influence was that? <laughs> there it is. There it is. There it is. Next question. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to hear about it later, I'm sure. Okay. Oh, another one, another curveball from Swirling Alhambra, the maestro. Is your project, Vicious Ladies, a way to address the lack of examples for writers like yourself? Yeah, I think it is. And for writers, but like entire generations of all kinds of Chicanos and Chicanexes, I feel like I've long bemoaned the lack of role models. And we have had role models. I mean, the if we think about like the Chicano movement and other parts of the civil rights movements and, and, and like these histories of activism, certainly we have excellent role models there, but everything's flawed and that's okay. Those are opportunities for us to learn today. All of our heroes are flawed. Like I said, these are opportunities for us to learn, but I just felt growing up that I didn't have people that I really looked up to and I didn't really know how to make a path for myself as a creative young person. And I didn't know artists and I didn't know that one could be really a writer. But as I've gotten older, I think I've found a lot of role models and great examples along the way. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. I mean, so many people here, you're all part of that. I didn't have that as a young person, but I, I do now. So I look forward to building a future with all of these minds that are here right now and that are floating around elsewhere. Do you remember uh, Caribbean the first time you met a published writer? Gosh, the first time I met a published writer, I don't remember the first time. I mean, certainly at UCLA, I met published writers. But I, not not when you were in high school or growing up? or. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I'm probably going to remember something later in the middle of the night, but right now I can't remember one. We got the Netflix question of the noche. Jessica is asking, have you thought of adapting the book into a television series? It would make a great series. Ooh, that would be fun. I always thought it would be fun to write like something for TV, like a series. Adapting this one, I don't know. I hear there's some interest out there, but we'll see what happens. I want the graphic novel before the TV series. I'm just throwing in my two cents. Virginia has a two-parter. She wants to know what your next creative writing project is, and she wants to know, do you write in community or alone? Oh, I'll start with the second part of the question first. Do I write in community or alone? I mean, the act of writing is like a solitary act when you're sitting down in front of the page or in front of your laptop, right? I mean, you need that solitude to get into that mental space you need to write the stories and to bring the stories forth. More and more as the years go by, I understand better the community that I'm part of. And I feel... I feel that company and I'm glad for it. I'm glad that I'm not just this lonely writer floating around in the world because I felt like that. I mean, even when I did meet other writers, I still kind of felt like I wasn't really connected to anything for much of my 20s, to be honest. But luckily, I mean, like I mentioned Vicky Vertis and like so many other writers based in LA and Hector and and I feel like my circles have been growing and, and I feel like everybody that I keep in touch with, even though I don't talk to people all the time, I still feel like they're, they're very special to me. And I feel like I'm part of a, of a community, even though I'm not physically with you guys. 
And then the other part of the question, I'm working on a novel. It's not really titled right now, but it's about a, a girl who disappears and her participation in a radicalized bird watching group that takes over public land. So it's about a revolution led by bird watchers and a teenage girl. So we'll see. <laughs> Sounds great. Sounds fantastic. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. Oh, this is a good one. Melissa Hidalgo, gracias for this one. Melissa would like to know that you mentioned earlier, uh, Caribbean, the influences of your Chicano, uh, Chicana studies and complex studies at UCLA on your work and the importance of making your own canons. What are some of your key literary texts in your personal canon? Let me see, I look over here. I have atomic gas texts. Uh, <laughs> I always mention Elena, Elena Maria Viramontes. She's phenomenal. More recently, I have Sabrina y Corina by Kelly Fajardo and Steen. She's super rad. There's Michelle Cerros, Sherry Moraga. I mean, of course, you have to have Gloria Ansaldúa. I always teach her in any writing class that I ever have taught. Who else? Uh, I'm literally looking at my bookshelf. I have Justin Torres, We the Animals. I thought that was phenomenal. I have Dana Johnson. She's from the San Gabriel Valley. She wrote um, Elsewhere, California. I love her very, very much. And yeah, those are just some. I mean, Hector Tobar, of course, is required reading. And there are many people. Thanks, Mal. That's a great question. Oh, man. Do we, I don't want to end this. But I, <laughs> well, remember remember to buy the book, Eat the Mouth That Feeds You. And Hector's book as well, Mijante, The Last Great Road Bomb. Both of them are available at City Lights. Please give it up for our wonderful, wonderful writers this evening and their conversation. Caribbean Fragosa and Hector Tobar, mi gente. Yeah, give him some Zoom loves. What a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming by. Come see us, mi gente, if you're around the Bay Area. We're open for business seven days a week from 12 to 8. It'd be a beautiful, beautiful thing to see you all in person. We've been broadcasting live from the offices of Lawrence Ferlinghetti at the top floor of City Lights. I want to say again, gracias to our good friends at the Los Angeles Real Books for partnering with this beautiful event. And uh, oh man, I don't want to end this, but I gotta get back downstairs and help someone find a Jack Kerouac book. So, <laughs> thank you, everybody. Um, and I just have to take two seconds to thank Elaine Katzenberger and Stacy Lewis for making this possible. Endless gratitude and love for both of you, Elaine. Thank you for believing in my book, and thank you for being part of this journey. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Hector and Josiah. Gracias, mi gente. Gracias. I hope to see you all real soon here in the real world. City Lights Books loves you. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.